God to the book of Exodus, chapter 1. Exodus, chapter 1. Exodus, first chapter. Uh, Reading from verse 1. Now, these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Uh, Each man with his household came with Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, for Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And it happen in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us and so go up out of the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Phytham and Ramesses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they grew and multiplied. And they were in the dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made for the children of Israel, so the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor or with harshness. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar, in brick, and all manner of service in the field. And all their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Shifra and the name of the other Pua. And he said, <coughs> excuse me, When you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew woman and see them on the birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do so as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? So the midwife said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. Therefore God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very mighty. And so it was because the midwives feared God that he provided households for them. So Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive." Joseph had been sold into slavery by his brothers uh, who meant it for evil, as the Bible said, but God meant it for good. And in time, Joseph rose uh, to a position of great favor in Egypt. In fact, he became the prime minister of Egypt, was second only to Pharaoh. And because of that, he became the savior of his brethren during those years of famine. And indeed, he became the savior of his whole nation, And you remember how he brought them to live in the land of Goshen. The land of Goshen was just east of lower Egypt. And it was a very fertile plain, a place that was absolutely suited to an agricultural people. And it was there in Goshen that they grew and they multiplied. 
and it was there that they became very prosperous indeed. And indeed, they settled for many generations, for 430 years, they were there in the land of Goshen. And then in time, again, after many generations, long after Joseph and his brethren had died, it says there rose up a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. Now, I don't think that that means that he didn't know about him historically, because Joseph was a, a, an icon in Egypt. I mean, he would have been a household name because he was the one who uh, did a wonderful work in Egypt and saved Egypt, actually, because he was able to interpret those dreams that God had given. And uh, I think what it means is that he did not know Joseph. In other words, he did not give Joseph any respect, uh, did not want to know anything about Joseph. He was anti-Joseph. And in, in fact, he became the first recorded anti-Semite in history. And, uh, and he did what all anti-Semite rulers have done since then over the thousands of years. Uh, he segregated and annexed uh, the Jewish people in the land of Goshen and put them to hard labor. In fact, he made it a massive slave labor camp. And by this time, it was reckoned there was probably millions, literally millions of Jewish people living in the land of Goshen. We know in chapter 12, later on, where it says that whenever they left, there were 600,000 adult men, men that would be the age for war. And if all of those were married men, that well, then that would be 1.2 million. And if all of those, because it says they were growing and multiplying mightily, if they had four children uh, per family, well, you can see then you're going into millions. And as well as that, a mixed multitude left with them when they eventually left, that mixed multitude probably came from the, the servants and, 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 the, and the workers of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, uh, and so you're talking here of millions and millions and millions of people. And of course, when Pharaoh saw that, this particular Pharaoh, uh, who knew not Joseph, uh, then he uh, wanted to deal with them in case that they would turn against Egypt and actually uh, fight against them in war. And so he put them to hard labor. Uh, and this was very difficult for an agricultural people because he made them make bricks out of clay. Uh, so many, in fact, they were able to build these great cities for Pharaoh. Uh, and if you read the story fully, not just where we read, but you would find out that uh, because they did this so efficiently, he made it harder for them. Uh, before that, they would, the Egyptians would supply them with straw for the bricks. Now they made them make straw themselves to go out in the fields and, and harvest the straw to make the bricks and still make the same amount of bricks. So all the time he was thinking of ways to make life more difficult for them. Whenever Sally and I, uh, there was it last year, the year before, whenever we went to the death camps in Poland of Auschwitz and Birkenau, uh, our guide told us uh, in one of her talks that she was giving through the camp, she said, you know, the Nazis were particularly cruel to the children. They were especially cruel to the children. And even to the adults, they did everything they could to, uh, uh, to, for them to lose their dignity. She says, for instance, uh, you know, the, the striped pajamas, as it were, that they wore, that they gave them to wear. If it was a tall person, they would give them something that was short. If it was a small person, they'd give them something that was long. They made them wear clogs. 
If they had big feet, they give them small clogs. If they had small feet, they give them big clogs. Just everything to make life difficult and awkward and horrible for them, apart from, of course, gassing and burning them. And, uh, and so you can see this Pharaoh. And then we see when that didn't work, and they still prospered and still grew and still multiplied, well, then he wanted to absolutely just wipe them out completely. And so the order went out to these midwives that whenever these Hebrew boys were born, that they were to kill them at birth. Uh, again, the whole idea was, of course, that if they'd wipe out the, the male population, only the females was left, that eventually the females would probably intermingle with the Egyptians, and after a while there'd be no more Hebrew race at all. And, uh, and so that was the plan. But it didn't work because the Hebrew midwives, or these midwives that looked after the Hebrew children, uh, they feared God and they wouldn't kill them. And by the way, this is the first recorded act of civil disobedience in Scripture also. And, uh, and, and they feared the Lord, and the Lord blessed them for that. But because that didn't work, then he set out a decree that all over Egypt, everybody, uh, they were to kill, make sure if any uh, Hebrew boy was born, they were to find them and throw them into the Nile, let the crocodiles eat them. And so this is, uh, uh, this is a horrible, difficult time in the lives uh, of the children of Israel in the land of Goshen. And then in chapter 2, which we're not going to read, you see that that deals with the birth of Moses during this time, and then how he grew up uh, to be the son of Pharaoh's daughter. At the age of 40, uh, that chapter very gallops along, at the age of 40, how he kills an Egyptian uh, that he sees who's hurting uh, a Hebrew, and he kills him and buries him. And then the next day he sees two Hebrews fighting, and he intervenes and said, are you going to kill us the way you killed the Egyptian? And suddenly he realized that he was, he was caught on. He was seen. And so he, he ran to Midian. And he stayed there uh, for 40 years until he was 80. And then in chapter 3, that's where he had the great uh, experience at the burning bush. And God says, go back again and go back to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And, uh, and then over the next uh, several chapters, in fact, up to... Uh, chapter 10, you'll see a whole series of plagues that God brought upon uh, Egypt because they wouldn't let the children of Israel go. And then by the time you come to chapter 11 of Exodus, which is a very, very short chapter indeed, uh, this comes to the last plague. Uh, now he'll let the children of Israel go because now uh, God is going to come and judge them and kill their firstborn. Uh, the Egyptians firstborn. And the Lord spoke to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt, and afterward he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out of here altogether. Speak now in the hearing of the people. Let every man ask from his neighbor and every woman from her neighbor articles of silver and articles of gold. And the Lord gave people favor uh, in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, in the sight of the people. And Moses said, Thus saith the Lord, About midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the female servant who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn even of the animals. And there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such was not like before, nor indeed shall be like again. 
But against none of the children of Israel shall a dog move his tongue against man or beast, that you may know that the Lord does make a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, and all the people who follow you. And after that I will go out. Then he went out from Pharaoh in great anger. But the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not heed you, so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. So Pharaoh and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the children of Israel go out of his land. And so this brings us now to uh, chapter 12. And now we come to what is known as the Passover. The Passover is the oldest of all the Jewish festivals. It holds a very special place in the heart of the Jewish people. Also, it holds a very special place in the hearts of all those who believe and trust in Christ as their Passover lamb. Uh, The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, For indeed, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Remember John said, John the Baptist in John 1, 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of God of the world. And so this is a type, this is a picture, an illustration of the true Lamb of God, the true Passover Lamb of God, which is Christ our Savior. Clifford Hill is a man who has traveled Israel many, many times. In fact, he has taken over 3,000 people and over 80 journeys into Israel uh, uh, on tours. And he said that One time, he and an Israeli archaeologist friend of his were sitting on a hillside outside Bethlehem. And his friend said to him, Clifford, do you know who these fields belong to in Jesus' day? He says, well, you might well ask me the shoe size of Herod the Great. He says, I had no idea. So I says, Avi, I have no idea who owned them. He said, the temple owned these fields around Bethlehem. And he says, these fields were the fields where the lambs were raised for the ritual slaughter, and especially where the Passover lambs were born and raised for the Passover ceremony. And he said when he saw that, when he heard that, he immediately then understood that's why Christ was born in Bethlehem because that's where the Passover lambs were born and Christ is our Passover lamb. And so he said, immediately when he said that, it started to make sense. And then what made more sense was, you remember when the angels came to announce the birth of the Passover lamb, Christ? They did not go to Herod Uh, in his palace. They did not go to uh, the Roman authorities. They did not go into Jerusalem. Where did they come to? They came to the shepherds and the hillsides of Bethlehem because those shepherds would be the ones who would be reporting when the Passover lambs were born. They would be the ones who would see them first and who would note that a Passover lamb had been born. And so he gave them that first privilege. So Christ is our 
Passover lamb. One of the great Christian doctrines is substitution. In other words, Christ dying in our place, Christ taking the punishment for our sins, paying the price for our salvation, becoming our Passover lamb. Satan hates this doctrine. He hates all Christian doctrine, but he especially hates this doctrine of Christ being our Passover lamb, our substitute. Now, understandably, I suppose the unsaved uh, sees no sense in it. It's too bloody. It's too barbaric. And, and anyway, how can one man's death save the whole world? And so we can understand that to some degree for those who are unsaved. But what is utterly reprehensible is those who claim to be saved and those who are preachers and ministers of the gospel who actually fail to grasp this great truth and who agree with that and who say there's no place for this in Christian doctrine. It's too barbaric. It's too bloody. And anyway, you wouldn't expect a God of love to give his son to die in our place and to take our sins upon himself and to die such a cruel, bloody death on a Roman cross. A God of love wouldn't do that to his son. And you'd be surprised how many teaches that today and tries to do away with the substitution of Christ dying for our sins. But actually, the opposite is true because it's only because God is a God of love. It's only because He's a God of love that He did and that He could give His only begotten Son to be that Lamb of God to die on a cross for us. It was His love that actually allowed that and caused that to happen. Romans 8 and 32, He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Paul also says in Romans 4.25, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Now notice Jesus was delivered up because of our offenses. And this theme runs right throughout even the Old Testament. Isaiah 53 and 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. Who delivered him up? Isaiah 53 and 6. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 4. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. That's why Paul says, he who did not spare his own son. So away with this nonsense that God would not have given up his son to die on a cross, a bloody death for our sins because he would love his son too much. No, he loved us that much that he's prepared to give his son up to die for us on a cross. Nothing in Scripture could be clearer than that. And that's why we preach about the blood of the Lamb. And that's why we sing about the blood of the Lamb. And that's why we testify about being washed in the blood of the Lamb. So let's see now here in 
chapter 12 of Exodus, this Passover lamb. And let's wonder at our Passover lamb. In chapter 12, it says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. So this was going to mark a new time, a new beginning for them. For 430 years, they had lived in Egypt. <clears throat> Egypt, often in Scripture, is spoken of as a type of the world. And now they were going to come out of it. In fact, the very day they come out of it would end that 430 years. And so it would be a very definite time, a very definite moment when they would leave Egypt and they'd go towards the promised land. Whenever you and I embraced and understood to the degree that we could then that Christ was our Passover lamb, that Christ died on the cross for our sins as our substitute, whenever we embraced that and accepted that and received that, we became born again of God's Spirit and we left the world and we're heading to God's promised land for us. And it was a new beginning, wasn't it? It was a very clear, cut, definite time in our lives. And we knew it. We knew something had happened. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. And your lamb shall be without blemish, a meal of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Each household had to provide a lamb. Now, because the lamb, as we'll see in a moment, because the lamb, after it was killed and after it was blood, was used to, to put in the doorposts and the lentils of their home, after that, then they had to eat the lamb. And there is to be no wastage. And so, if a household was too small to eat a whole lamb, then they could join with another household. But there'd be no wastage. And if there, even if there was anything left at all, it would have to be burned. So there'd be absolutely no wastage. And so this was very precise. They had to do it exactly as they were told, and they had to do it immediately. The lamb had to be without blemish, it says. A young lamb of the first year and without blemish. Was Christ not without blemish? Was he not pure and spotless? Of course he was. Paul said, first, 2 Corinthians 5.21, he knew no sin. Now we can't say that. Sure we can't. We know sin. Now we just know about sin. We know sin. Because we're sinners and we have sinned. So we know it experientially. We know it even as a very part of our nature. But Christ 
knew no sin. Oh, he knew the effects of sin. He could see it all around him. But he himself knew no sin. 1 Peter 2.22, Peter says, He did no sin. No sin was found in him. He did no sin. The only man that ever walked the face of the earth who did no sin. John, 1 John 3.5, In him is no sin. He said to the Pharisees one time, He said, Which of you convinces me of sin? None of them. He did no sin. Hebrews 4.15, He was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 7.26, He is holy, undefiled, and separate from sinners. The thief on the cross said, This man has done nothing amiss. Pilate says, I find no fault in this man. Even Judas said, I have betrayed innocent blood. And so he was a lamb without spot or without blemish. And he had to be. You can see why this Passover lamb in Exodus is a perfect type of Christ that was to come. And Jesus fulfilled the type perfectly. Did you notice that in verse 3 it says, a lamb, and in verse 4, the lamb, and in verse 5, your lamb. Jesus became a lamb without spot or blemish. He was the lamb that took away the sins of the world, but he became your lamb at Calvary. This little lamb had to be kept from the 10th to the 14th. And in that time, it would become very personal to the family. Uh, no doubt they stroked it and hugged it and children would play with it, perhaps give it a pet name. It wasn't like all the other lambs that was out in the fields. This one had to be kept close by the house. For those four days, it almost became like a little pet. They would know it Intimately. And it would be a time for reflection and meditation and preparation. It would have to be inspected very closely to make sure that it was without spot or without blemish. Isn't it interesting that Jesus, the last, particularly the last week of his life, he spent so much time at Jerusalem where he was constantly being inspected where he was constantly looked at with the scribes and Pharisees to see if they could find fault. But they couldn't find fault. Sure they couldn't. In fact, when they tried him, they had to get people to come and lie about him because no fault could be found in him. So this little lamb would be kept. And during that four days, the realization that that family would begin to understand that this lamb, that the only one that we have got to know and to handle and to touch. And John says, we have handled him, the word of life. Hmm. John laid upon his breast. This is the little lamb that was going to become their substitute. This is the one that was going to die 
so that their firstborn wouldn't die. And that father knew that on the 14th day, he was going to have to get up and take his knife and kill that lamb. Can you imagine how the children must have felt? But it had to be done. No matter how attached they were to that little lamb, they had to kill it for it to become their substitute. And without the death of this lamb, listen to this, judgment would come to their house too. Without the death of this lamb, judgment would come to their house too. Now those Israelites, they may have felt that they were not as bad or as deserving as death as those cruel, wicked Egyptians. But that in itself was not enough. They were sinners before a holy God too. And for God to pass over His judgment on their lives, an innocent, pure, spotless lamb had to be slain. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. James 2.10, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all of it. That's how high a standard God has got. It's impossible for us to keep the whole law. That's how high a standard it is. And that's why we as lawbreakers need someone to forgive us for breaking God's law because we couldn't keep it. It was too high. It was too holy. It was too much. But thank God Jesus kept it. He didn't break God's law. And so a lamb had to die. And at twilight, it had to die. Now Josephus tells us that the Passover lambs were slain at twilight. Twilight to the Jew was around about three in the afternoon. What time did Jesus die on the cross? The sixth hour. What's the sixth hour? Three in the afternoon. He fulfilled the type perfectly. And then in verse 7 it says, The blood was then to be sprinkled upon the doorposts and the lentil of their house. Not upon the store step where it would be trampled upon but upon the doors and upon the lentils. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26, For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much more worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot 
and counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace. So no blood was to be put on the doorstep where men could trample on it, but on the doorposts and the lentils of their house. A lamb had to be slain. It was not optional. The death angel passing over would only look for one thing and one thing only, a blood doorpost and lentil, blood upon the doorpost. It's the only thing that the angel looked for. Sure, they had a better understanding of any nation on earth about God, but that wasn't in itself enough to save them. In fact, it was the only nation that God ever signed a treaty with but that wasn't enough to save them. The only thing could save them was, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And that's the only thing saves us. People go to church all of their life thinking that will save them. It won't. It's only the blood. There's people in church choirs today who's not covered with the blood. And it won't save them being in the church choir. Only the blood will save. Men don't like to talk about the blood today. Many liberal preachers despise talking about the blood. And sadly, many evangelical preachers no longer speak of the blood of the Lamb. They say it puts people off. It's too hard for them to understand. Really? Hmm. Well, let's help them understand. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And they're not going to understand it with their head anyway. They're only going to understand it with the heart when the Holy Spirit moves upon them and opens up their heart to understand these things. But we've got to preach it. We've got to share it. We've got to talk about it. Romans 5 and 9 says we're justified by His blood. Ephesians 2 and 12, we're brought near by His blood. Colossians 1 and 20, we have peace through His blood. 1 Peter 1 19, we are redeemed by the precious blood of the Lamb. As a lamb without spot or blemish. Then verses 7 through 11, and I'm not going to read all of those. You can read those in your own time, but for the sake of time this morning. There was the eating of the Lamb had to be roasted, not boiled, not eaten raw. wonder why that was. Could it be that oftentimes in pagan lands, even today, that meat of the kill is eaten raw, supposedly to transfer that power and that energy and that life to the one who ate it? And God was going to have none of that. <laughs> He's going to have none of that. Had to be eaten with bitter herbs to remind them of the bitter years they spent in Egypt. Had to be eaten with unleavened bread. Leaven was the yeast that caused the dough to rise. And again, in Scripture, often it's spoken of as a type of sin. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul here, speaking about this, he's 
telling them to deal with a, an awful sexual sin that was within the Corinthian church, to deal with it. Then he says, they were glorying about it. And he says, your glorying is not good, verse 6. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. You see what he's thinking. He's going back here. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. They were to eat this unleavened bread for seven days. It became the feast of unleavened bread. And it was a type of telling them, you're a holy people. Now keep yourself holy before God because you're a holy people. You're not like the Egyptians. You're a different people. You're a holy people. So they had to eat unleavened bread. Verse 11, they were to leave Egypt immediately. They had to eat with their loins girded, with sandals on their feet, with a staff in their hand, and they would eat quickly. Because first thing in the morning, immediately, as soon as daylight would break and the death angel had passed over, immediately they were to get out of there. They weren't to hang around. They weren't to wait to see what was going to happen to Egypt. They were to get out of there fast. Whenever you and I get saved, we don't hang around in the world. We get out of it. That doesn't mean to say we don't try to reach it. I mean, Jesus was the friend of sinners. He didn't isolate himself from the world. We're in it, but we're not of it. He says, get out of it fast. You're heading to the promised land. Staff in your hand, shoes in your feet, your loins girded. You're going to get going here. By the way, that night, when they closed their door, and the blood was on the lentils and the posts. They had to stay in the house. They had to stay in that house. They had to stay under the blood. They couldn't put the blood on the doors and then spend the night in Egypt. They couldn't go out partying that night. <laughs> and there's too many believers that say, well, the blood's applied to my life, but I can go out and I can party all night with the Egyptians. Sorry, you can't. Sorry, you can't. It doesn't work that way. So they were to leave immediately. 12 and 14, it says, This blood upon their doorposts and lentils was to be a sign upon their house. A sign of separation. If there's no sign of separation in our lives as believers, then there's something wrong, isn't there? If the world can't see any difference in us, there's something wrong, isn't there? We're not living right. Something's gone wrong somewhere. But when you're saved, there's a sign of separation. I'm not talking about the what you wear, what you dress, although we should dress correctly and modestly. I'm not talking about that but I'm talking about her lifestyle. It ought to be different. And that's the sad thing that's happened in church today. There's sometimes you wonder, sometimes you wonder 
Is there any difference in lifestyle here? If there's not, I question. Something hasn't happened. If there's no difference in lifestyle, what is the difference? Surely if we're saved and we're born again of God's Spirit, we're going to live differently, aren't we? We're not going to be the same as the world. That's why we got out of the world in the first place. And the world doesn't want you to be like them. Because if you are, they just say you're a hypocrite. You're no different than I am. They want you to be different. Yeah, they may slag you off and they may make fun of you and all the rest of it, but they want you to be different. So the blood was to be a sign. We'll have time to read this now, but you can read it later. When they prepared this meal, they had to roast the lamb. They had to eat it with bitter herbs and unleavened bread. Not a bone of it, in verse 46, not a bone of it shall be broken. What does it say in John 19 about Christ? When he's dying on that cross, not a bone was to be broken. And when those soldiers came to quicken the death of those three on the cross because of the Passover, they broke the legs of the two in the right and the left of Jesus. And they came to him. He was dead already. He had given up his spirit. So they didn't break a bone, but they lunged a spear into his side. Not a bone shall be broken. And so the the Lamb of God, the Paschal Lamb of God in Exodus 12 is a perfect picture of our Lamb of God who went to the cross, who died that horrible, bloody death for you and for me as our substitute. <laughs> Isn't it wonderful? Isn't the gospel a wonderful, wonderful thing? A lamb, the lamb, your lamb, my lamb. Let's pray.